European Union has not treated us well. Ugh. Stupid European elites jumping off the cliffs once again. Ugh. Yes, you are the guilty people and you refuse to accept it. This is EU Screen, the progressive politics podcast from Brussels, in association with EU Observer. I'm James, a journalist who's crisscrossed Europe for 15 years now. In this episode, a look at the pastors and plutocrats sponsoring an ultra-conservative agenda in Europe. It's a world that's pretty opaque, but journalists have done painstaking work to pierce the veil. This year, they've shown how nonprofit groups, many with links to Donald Trump, are seeking to narrow sexual and reproductive rights, demonize LGBT people, and curtail sex education. Later this episode, we speak with the editor of British online platform Open Democracy on their investigation. First, we talk to Blas Utsgaga, a multi-award winning investigative journalist from Slovenia. Utsgaga writes for Croatia's Nacional, and he's a member of two major networks of investigative journalists. He's emerged with extraordinary detail about some of the biggest funders of faith-based causes in Europe and about the links many of them have with Trump world. Beneficiaries include the arch-conservative Alliance Defending Freedom. So far-reaching is the Alliance Defending Freedom's influence on U.S. politics that comedian Stephen Colbert ridiculed the organization on his Late Show for seeking to recover the robust Christendomic theology of the 3rd, 4th, and 5th centuries. I first asked Utsgaga to describe how much money Alliance Defending Freedom had channeled to Europe and about that group's links to Trump. According to our investigation, Alliance Defending Freedom received around $228 million between 2012 and 2017 from U.S. citizens and private foundations registered in the United States. And uh, at least $8.4 million have been transferred to European operation. Can you just tell us what we know about some of the donors from Trump world to Alliance Defending Freedom? This is not to say that they're necessarily the main donors, but there do appear to be connections. There are important names. One is Richard and Helen DeVos Foundation. The Richard and Helen DeVos Foundation. I didn't know those names in the past, but when I checked, I found that this is the founder of Mway Corporation, and his three sons, one of the sons married Betsy DeVos, who is currently Secretary of Education. And we then checked all foundations of this family. So we found that beside Richard and Helen DeVos Foundation, also Edgar and Elsa Prince Foundation donated money to Align Defending Freedom and is led by Eric Prince, a mercenary entrepreneur who is a brother of Betsy DeVos. He's an entrepreneur that does military protection services. Is that the best way to put that? Yes, it's a founder of Blackwater. His company was involved during the Iraqi war. But what is more important, we found that beside Eric Frenz, we found that the Vos family donated almost $2 million to Acton Institute in the same period. 
And the same Acton Institute passed $1.1 million for European operation. Additionally, there is Charles Koch, uh, one of the major U.S. billionaire entrepreneur who is financing many neoliberal think tanks who are uh, promoting this ideology. He uh, financed Acton Institute with $400,000 in the same period. Now, Exhibit B, if I can put it that way, is the American Center for Law and Justice. They are one of the, the biggest donors to European operation and European organizations. They uh, passed at least $7.5 million uh, between 2012 and 2017. We were unable to find any donors, but what is really uh, interesting is that Jay Sekulow, one of the core members of Donald Trump legal team, founded European subsidiary of ATLJ, European Center for Law and Justice, and is very involved in uh, its operations. Let's move on to Exhibit C, World Youth Alliance. Again, who does that group get donations from, as far as we know? And how much of that money has it transferred to like-minded European organizations? World Youth Alliance is actually an organization where we were finally able to connect all the dots. They are founded by Chiara School of Foundation, And behind Chiara School of Foundation is U.S. billionaire Sean Filler, who was also uh, advisor to Donald Trump campaign. And Sean Filler provided around $1.8 million to Chiara School of Foundation. So here we have, in this case, a clear connection, rich individual with his personal religious or personal beliefs, donated to a foundation, which is actually his personal foundation, which passed the money to World Youth Alliance, which operates not only in the United States, not only in Europe, but on all continents, spreading ideas and agendas. And finally, according to tax returns from New York City, they received $6.4 million from this foundation between 2012 and 2017. Around 10%, $640,000 Uh, went for operations in Europe. Let's go just a little bit deeper into the Alliance Defending Freedom. It's important to note that these organizations have five subsidiaries. The main one is in Vienna, Austria, then in Brussels, London, Strasbourg, and Geneva in Switzerland. So all the cities where we have important uh, diplomatic institutions like United Nations, European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg. So it's not a coincidence that they selected these cities where uh, decision makers are based. So it's much easier to lobby. One thing that caught my eye, possibly because I'm based in Brussels, is that Alliance Defending Freedom has also been successfully lobbying in Brussels to support Christians in the Middle East to the extent that this resulted in the creation of a new role at the European Commission for one of its former commissioners, the Slovak conservative Jan Fiegel. You know, this is evidence that these groups have real impact. Yes, they have a real impact, but all these organizations, all these nonprofits, are mostly new organizations. They have been generally founded in the last 10 years, what also shows that it's a kind of a new effort, a new approach. In many ways, these groups are doing similar things, and they certainly reinforce each other's 
work, but they also create a sort of echo chamber. So each is sort of saying the same thing and they quote each other and they, they can sort of cite each other as being a sign of popular support for their work, whereas in fact, this just may be very aggressive lobbying. Exactly. The European Center for Law and Justice, I think it was 2017, and this lobbying arm or advocacy arm of the Catholic Church, they even held a joint conference in Brussels called Preventing Abortion in Europe. They are coordinating the activities uh, and thus to influence public opinion, some are influencing on political process. Then we see through legal representation, they try to uh, change case law. Alliance Defending Freedom has also been involved in Sweden, right? Defending a midwife who didn't want to offer abortion services. There are many such cases, but we found one case where uh, ADF was legally representing uh, one Swedish midwife. She refused to perform abortion, and so now it's up to the court uh, to decide. But we know that such cases usually cost a lot of money. Here we now have an organization which is uh, supporting these legal cases and pushing it up to the highest level to get decisions that will suit the agenda. The World Youth Alliance is actually been part of organizing the curriculum at schools? For example, in Croatia, World Youth Alliance was able to create a special school curriculum, human dignity curriculum, and local ministry of education approved it uh, in at least two schools. So uh, they are actually influencing future generation in Croatia because pupils are now uh, learning according to the their curriculum. Well, the World Youth Alliance was founded inside the United Nations at a conference on population and development. And at that moment, the UN itself brought in a group of, of young people who were promoting ideas and, and aspects that I couldn't agree with. They were promoting a radical agenda of human rights, um, including abortion as a human right, and other such, such ideas. And and so I, I realized that... A lot of these groups, which are benefiting from U.S. funding and others, have one sort of unifying goal, and that's to make sure that the European Union and its institutions don't get involved in protecting the sexual and reproductive health of Europeans and instead leave any of those questions entirely to member states, which is kind of weird, really, because the EU plays a leading role in all kinds of other health issues like air quality, quality of pharmaceuticals, you know, the quality of medical instruments. Yes, I agree. Uh, it's obvious that reproductive and sexual rights of citizens of European Union are not equal. And I just wonder, what is your sense here in Europe as to whether the pro-life forces with this foreign funding, including from the United States and clearly from elements within Trump world, do they have a lot more money to lobby than, say, pro-choice forces? This should stay only on a guest level because we didn't have time and resources to analyze also pro-choice organizations. But... If pro-life organizations continue with all this support from the American continent, it is highly possible they might get more important. And let me ask a hypothetical question. Uh, where would this pro-life organization be in Europe if there would be no money from the United States? 
Yes, we are living in globalized societies, but it's still important that some issue should be decided by each society on its own. But what is really missing and what I think is really important here is transparency. To the, to the point about transparency, I mean, one thing that you seem to be recommending is that in tax returns filed by American nonprofits, it would be good if U.S. authorities changed the regulations a little bit such that the donors would also be visible. Exactly. And not only American, also all European member countries, nonprofits have very important share in uh, creating public opinion. They run a lot of campaign, not only a a question about pro-life, it's also about environment, other social rights. And some are collecting a lot of money because these are expensive campaigns, but citizens, taxpayers usually do not have an insight who is funding these organizations. So it seems Europe might be getting a wrong kind of Marshall Plan through these opaque channels of funding. Another chronicler of this merging of fundamentalist Christianity with public policy is Mary Fitzgerald. Fitzgerald was formerly at online activist network Avaz and a senior editor at Prospect Magazine. She's now editor-in-chief of UK online platform Open Democracy, which has done exhaustive work on what U.S. nonprofit groups disclose about some of their foreign spending. Her platform also has uncovered evidence of how U.S.-style big-money Christian politics is coming to Europe. Fitzgerald has since written about those findings for the New York Review of Books and Project Syndicate. We met on a warm late August day in a leafy part of East London. We first talked about the volumes of U.S. ultra-conservative money flowing into Europe. It was $51 million that we were able to track over the last 10 years. That's probably the tip of the iceberg. That was only some of the largest religious Christian organisations. So, for example, uh, one of the organisations that we found had been spending the largest amount of money in Europe, the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. We only have their, their spending figures up to 2014 because their status changed and so they didn't have to file the type of information that, that we require to figure out where their money's going anymore. So there's all kinds of loopholes. So we don't know the full picture about these money flows. Again, it's very hard to trace where all the money went. So we know, for example, that there's a relationship between Heartbeat International, which is one of the pioneers of what, what's called the CPC model, which is Crisis Pregnancy Centre model in the United States where staff are trained to dissuade women from having legal terminations. And we know that there's a relationship between this organisation and organisations operating now in Italy. One of our reporters has been to some of these new crisis pregnancy centres and has been told all kinds of really troubling misinformation about women's options when it comes to abortion. Among the biggest spenders on Europe, are these Christian right legal powerhouses Mm. that have had huge effects on American politics. I think it's really interesting that a lot of the organisations we looked at are what are called Christian legal armies. And of course, that's recognisable when you think about the culture wars that are happening in the United States. But it needs to be better understood that that's happening here in Europe too. You know, when you have a religious couple who are refusing to provide business to same-sex couples 
and they take that challenge all the way to the Supreme Court, whatever the merits of that case are or not, and whatever you think about the human rights involved in that situation, someone's paying for that legal challenge. Gareth Lee, a gay activist, ordered and paid for a cake. He wanted it iced with a picture of the two Sesame Street puppets, Bert and Ernie, and the message, support gay marriage. But two days later, the company cancelled the order and gave him a refund. Now it has a very high price tag, £36.50 when it was ordered. After a four-year court battle, it's closer to half a million pounds. The bakers won that case last year, and they were quick to offer their gratitude. Well, I want to start by thanking God. And God had a central part in this case. But maybe the bakers should have been quicker to thank the UK's Evangelical Christian Institute. It paid around £250,000 in legal fees to uphold the bakers' right to refuse icing a cake with a message supporting gay rights. The baker's obstinacy left the UK taxpayer footing the rest of the half-million-pound bill because the gay man had the support of the UK's Equality Commission. The UK cake case is back on appeal and now headed to the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg. There's not anywhere near enough scrutiny of who is funding these legal challenges and how these efforts are being coordinated in different European countries. Is that the aspect that you would characterize as dark money? There are lots of different working definitions of dark money. Ours is money where you don't know what the source is. It's most worrying in the political context because if you don't know what the source of the money is, who the source of the money is, then you don't know what agendas or interests that money is being deployed to serve. We do hear a lot about Russian use of disinformation to shift politics in Europe. But what you focused on, at least this year, is U.S. nonprofits. So there's this whole other dimension to the way that European politics is being shifted. I do think that there has been a lot of interest in Russian misinformation and interference, uh, slightly at the expense of looking at the networks and interests that are based in the United States that are trying to have an outsized impact on the world. Obviously, Russian misinformation and, and interference is, is an issue. It needs to be investigated. But I think sometimes it can be a distraction when you think about the other sort of world interests that are trying to shape um, politics in Europe. So shortly after you published the article about the 51 number, $51 million in the spring, Around 100 members of parliament from 14 European countries and members of the European Parliament wrote to the European Commission's Vice President, Franz Timmermans, asking him to investigate the funding sources and the influence of U.S. Christian right groups. Did anything come of that? He wrote a very nice letter back saying, thank you for raising this. This is an important issue. But the trouble is a lot of this stuff gets bounced back to the national level because transparency laws around political campaigning and spending are mainly made at the national level. And there's a wide variance between different countries of oversight and regulation. So I've heard a lot of senior EU people say they're concerned about it, but they don't, they don't feel it's appropriate for them to step in. Or Timmermans, in his capacity as the vice president of the commission, had these annual meetings with Europe's religious leaders, could have used that bully pulpit to perhaps deliver a message about not letting 
religion become an arm for extreme politics? I think there's a real fight about the uh, character of Europe on at the moment. But what's fascinating is that so many of the people who advocate these nativist or racist positions have appropriated the language of European human rights to make their case. You hear anti-LGBT campaigners using the language of science and bioethics to talk about why gay marriage is unnatural and why children should be protected from malign influences. You hear those who actually seek to deny people their rights explicitly using human rights arguments to make that case. And that's pretty scary. Also unnerving is separate reporting by Open Democracy on the arrival in Europe of U.S.-style political campaign funding, funding of the kind that's hard to trace and potentially unlimited. That reporting focuses on the role of a Madrid-based nonprofit group called Citizen Go in the rise and rise of Spain's extreme right-wing Vox Party. Vox, founded seven years ago and which is fiercely anti-feminist, captured headlines over the past year for taking two dozen seats in the Spanish Parliament and three seats in the European Parliament. Let's talk about another aspect of the funding for the far right in Europe, and that's the emergence of what amounts to these U.S.-style super PACs or political action committees. These kinds of committees may not be able to contribute directly to political campaigns, but they can raise and spend unlimited sums for independent efforts, like, say, media advertisements, media campaigns. So what exactly is Citizen Go in light of this? It was set up to be the right-wing or conservative answer to progressive online campaigning platforms like Avars and MoveOn.org. And so they they run lots of petitions, they run lots of campaigns. They are global. I mean, they were they had, one of their most successful campaigns was in Kenya to get uh, Marie Stopes' international temporary ban from performing legal termination services. And they have members and staffers in lots of different countries across the world. But the idea that they can act as proxies for political parties or candidates unofficially, not through any official contract or arrangement or channel is concerning because, as you say, it opens the door for unlimited spending on media adverts, on other efforts which help a political candidate or a, or a political party and cause. Our, our undercover reporter in Spain got a lot of detail on this. You know, the, the Vox officials he spoke to and the Citizen Go people he spoke to laid this all out perfectly clearly. And they deny that there's anything wrong with it and they claim it's all within the law. And whether technically they're acting as a super PAC or not, or whether it was a looser description, Citizen Go could be a proxy campaign for Vox without any official connection or coordination between the two of them. Citizen Go put out attack ads against Vox's opponents. They weren't under any of the same restrictions in terms of spending and transparency, disclosure of funding, etc., that Vox was under. And so they were able to get Vox's message across, amplify it, spend far more money and spread misinformation and uh, do negative aggressive campaigning without it being anything to do with Vox officially. So what would be the difference between Avaz doing sort of political action on behalf of progressives and what Citizen Go was doing on behalf of the alt-right? 
I mean, Avars, I used to work at Avars, you know, they raise all their money from their members. No one's allowed to give more than $5,000 a year. <laughs> they're not controlled by some opaque forces we don't understand. They're very transparent about where they get money from, what they do, you know, what they're there for. Whereas the same certainly can't be said of Citizen Go. But I think the bigger problem really is, and this is something that the former US Democratic Senator, Russ Feingold, when he saw our story about Vox and the type of political campaigning tactics they were using and the dark money that was involved, you know, he said, well, you guys have got to get ahead of this problem. It's destroying our politics in the United States. It's become a serious vehicle for misinformation to advance the interests or causes of particular candidates. I mean, that's where a lot of that nonsense about Hillary Clinton came from. The story that's emerging for us, the picture that's emerging for us, is one where whatever the national laws are, whatever the safeguards, whatever the transparency requirements and regulations, there are so many ways around them. But if you take the logic of that further, where does that end? That means unlimited spending. That means unaccountable political funding and action. And it means that the, the, the rules and systems we have for oversight are completely not fit for purpose, like totally out of date. That's EU Scream for this week. You can check our website at euscream.com for links to topics discussed in the show and for more episodes. Please rate us on iTunes, tweet about us at EU Screams, and like us on Facebook. EU Scream is edited and mixed by me, James Cantor. Tom Brooks and I produce the show. Laura Natali plays our piano. Thanks for listening. <laughs>